This is Race Capital with me, Naomi Isaac, where we interrogate racial narratives in our space, place, and time of so-called Richmond, Virginia, the falling capital of the Confederacy. All across the globe, our comrades are dying at the hands of the carceral state. White supremacy in the European concept of policing has relegated scores of human beings to a second-class citizenship and state-sponsored oppression. Capitalism allows for a small minority of wealth holders to enjoy an extravagant quality of life, all at the expense of our collective safety. Whether we look at the billions of dollars being spent waging international terrorism against black, brown, and indigenous communities overseas, or the money being spent to defend stolen land and made-up borders, or the money being taken out of our neighborhoods and reinvested in tear gas, rubber bullets, and flashbangs, the police state continues to jeopardize our lives for the good of its purse. If ending poverty was as profitable as war, every black kid in Mosby Court would be fed and clothed right now. Instead, our elected leadership covertly funnels millions of dollars into the same energy giant that leaves our children without lights and clean water. They cannot solve the issues that afflict us because the affliction is intentional. The suffering of Native people and my enslaved ancestors remain foundational to the functionality of this nation. It was with our blood, our sweat, our tears that they built this monument to white supremacy. And it is our blood, our sweat, and our tears that will topple it. Their punitive justice system is nothing but criminal, which is why black youth have stepped up to demand an end to the same carceral system that has kidnapped our siblings for centuries. We are tired of the system disappearing us. People in our communities have been lost to addiction, eviction, depression, violence, poverty in prison. Some were sold to auctioneers, others to the prosecutors, and millions had to die just to get their freedom. But we are not deterred by the challenges presented, and we have continued to imagine what it looks like to be free in this lifetime. 
Freedom's not possible until we dismantle all of the institutions that legitimize our oppression. That looks like ICE, CBP, DHS, the United States military, the United States empire. Recognizing abolition as a long-standing black southern strategy, we lean into the sacred framework crafted by the radical abolitionists, such as Nat Turner, Lucy Parsons, and Fannie Lou Hamer, who came before us. Like the ancestors who traded the plantation for the pitchfork or the ballot for the bullet, we trade the neoliberal tradition of reformation for the black feminist tradition of revolution. We must use our history as a vicious tool against the oppressor to remain hip to their tactics and the successes and failures of those who dare to struggle before us, to protect those of us willing to struggle for the people now and to see a future free of prisons later. This week on Race Capital, we speak with Dr. Biko Agazino, counter-colonial criminology scholar and author of the 1997 book, Black Women in the Criminal Justice System, to learn more about the criminalization of Black lives post-Reconstruction era in the South, as well as the importance of intersectionality in this current liberation movement. Next, we hear from Art Burton, Executive Director of Kinfolk Community Empowerment Center, to hear about the specific criminalization plaguing Black youth in our city. Lastly, we end with a guided meditation led by one of our future freedom fighters. We open the show with words from Black Power organizer, Brother Kwame Cherry. It will be solved. There's a difference between revolution and reform. It's a big difference. In reform, a man observing a foundation, observing a system, sees many problems. But he assumes that there's nothing wrong with the system. The foundation of the system for him is a good system. Thus, what he seeks to do is to change the building as best he can, but he wants to leave the foundation intact. Example, if I came to this building, it's Ackerman Hall, is it not? If I came to Ackerman Hall and I looked at the foundation, the foundation was falling. It was just falling, couldn't possibly stand. If I were a reformist, I'd say, okay, put a piece of board over that. So we cover the foundation. We haven't touched it. And then I'll come here and say, put a window there. Put a door here. Put a frame here. Put two rooms where there used to be one. What I'm doing is reforming the system. I am trying to make it look different, but I'm keeping the same rotten foundation. You must understand that because this country is full of reformists, black people notwithstanding. And these reformists have a tendency to deceive you to let you believe that things are really being changed when in fact the foundation has not been touched and the longer it stays, the more rotten it becomes. The more rotten it becomes. A revolutionary comes into the building, observes Ackerman Hall and says, looks at the foundation and said, hey, this foundation is filthy, it's rotten, it's corrupt. It must be torn up. A new one must be put in its place. Once he makes that decision, and once that theoretical decision which he's made is demonstrated actively in his day-to-day life, you have a revolutionary. Thus, a revolutionary is not someone who seeks to reform a system. He's someone who seeks to replace it. I'm a revolutionary. I'm not a reformist. Oh, freedom. I got freedom in my blood. Freedom, I got freedom in my bones. Freedom, I got freedom in my voice. So I'm taking my sovereignty. Freedom, freedom, I got 
Yes, my name is Omubiko Biko Agazino, pronounced I, he, him. I'm a criminologist and the author of Black Women and the Criminal Justice System. I'm also the author of Counter-Colonial Criminology, a critique of imperialist reason, and I'm the editor-in-chief of the African Journal of Criminology and Justice Studies. So this past weekend, uh, this country celebrated the genocide and, and occupation of what was known as Turtle Island. Here in Richmond, we wanted to center the ways that Black people aren't free. And that brought us back to, you know, discussing emancipation and the 13th Amendment. So can you speak to the way that, you know, emancipation or the 13th Amendment has criminalized Black people in this country? The 13th Amendment was passed to end slavery and coerced labor, forced labor in the U.S., but with a provision that, or an exception, that slavery and forced labor could still be used in America as punishment for crime if the party has been tried and found guilty of the offense. So the 13th Amendment did not abolish slavery once and for all. It was a compromise to allow, especially the state, to continue using what was known as convict labor system. Can you speak to us about the convict labor system and its role uh, in Black life during post-Reconstruction? Yes, uh, W.B. Du Bois made references to the convict labor system as a system that continued slavery. He used poetic language to say that the enslaved Africans came out from the cave of slavery and took one look at the bright sun outside the cave, turned back and went back into the cave of slavery because slavery continued by other names. And in the case of the convict labor system, it was, according to Du Bois, the major explanation for the overrepresentation of African Americans in prisons. Not because they were more likely to commit offenses, but because they were more likely to be targeted even when they had not committed any offenses because there was the incentive for the government to use incarcerated people to perform public works, but also to rent them out as sources of revenue to farmers to continue working as convict laborers. Today, you might say that similar systems exist in the prisons where prisoners work for pennies for many of the major corporations manufacturing some of the products that we buy without knowing from the shop. To go back to Reconstruction and the post-Reconstruction era, 
What was the overall climate uh, for Black folks uh, during Reconstruction in the South? And, and then what was the temperament and sentiment from white Southerners? That was a, a question that Du Bois also analyzed in Black Reconstruction in America, because at that time, lots of university professors in history were writing books to say that Reconstruction was a complete disaster for African-Americans because they believe that African-Americans were not intellectually or morally equal to white Americans. They said that slavery had dehumanized African-Americans and therefore giving them legal equality with whites would be to their disadvantage because they still needed to be protected and cared for by the government as people who were dehumanized after hundreds of years of slavery. Du Bois wrote the book to prove them wrong, including people like uh, President Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, to say that actually, when you pause to think about it, Reconstruction made very huge positive contributions, especially in the South, where public fu publicly funded public education was as a result of Black initiative. After the Civil War, the hundreds of thousands of African-Americans who fought to defeat the Confederacy demanded for learning above all, but they demanded for land and learning, not just for themselves, but for all Americans. They wanted public funds to be invested in public education so as to make it more affordable and accessible to all poor Americans, including white, poor whites. But unfortunately, the poor whites were more scared of a Negro with education than they were of an, a Negro armed as part of the Union Army. They were made to believe that educated African-Americans would then have the whipping hand over poor whites. So they were rioting and burning down black schools because they thought that education was only for the children of rich people and on the Appalachian range, they would say they don't need education to know how to hunt or fish or farm to feed their family. But they were proven wrong because the provision of publicly funded education allowed a lot of poor children, including poor whites, to go to school for the first time, thereby reducing the rates of illiteracy among all Americans. That was as a result of Black initiative according to Du Bois. There was also an expansion of public libraries and the construction of roads and canals to improve urban landscapes and rural farming. Those were some of the major positive contributions by Black Reconstruction that Du Bois noted. But because of what Du Bois called the psychological wages of whiteness, that is, he called it social and psychological wages of whiteness. A lot of poor whites, because of white pride or white privilege, believed that they, their interests were opposed to the interests of the newly emancipated African-Americans. The unions, even the unions, would not allow African-Americans to join the main union. African-American workers had to form their own unions. But what Du Bois was saying to the poor whites is that their interests 
we are closer to the interests of poor blacks because if the, all the poor people, white and black, came together to elect leaders who were sensitive to the needs of the poor, the conditions of the poor would be better improved. But the poor whites were tricked to vote against their interests, to support the politicians who were rich, who were the former plantation owners, to continue to rule over them and thereby deprive them of their basic rights under the ideology of white supremacy. That was how the KKK first organized using what Ida B. Wells called the bare-faced lie of rape allegations against black men to justify the lynching of black people. But Ida B. Wells pointed out to poor whites that lynching did not affect only black men. Out of the 3,000 or more cases that Ida B. Wells documented in white newspapers or from white newspapers, she identified one third, that is more than 1,000 cases of the lynching of poor white people to prove that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, as Martin Luther King Jr. stated in the letter from Birmingham City Jail. So that even up to today, you find many poor whites who are Tea Party supporters who are opposed to Obamacare, to Affordable Care Act, whereas support for such policies will be in the interest of poor white, not only for poor black people, but they do not know or have not realized fully that white supremacy is a threat to all, not only to black people, poor white people also pay huge debts for supporting white supremacy. And you saw that in the Civil War, when 700,000 people were killed, the vast majority of those 700,000 Americans were poor whites. So it will be difficult for white people to realize it, but when they realize it, then they should know that they're not supporting Black Lives Matter as charity for the benefit of black people. They should support Black Lives Matter because police brutality is a threat not only to black people, but also to white people. As a matter of fact, the Washington Post and the Guardian of London have been reporting that the vast majority of the people who are killed by the police in America are white people. So for every black person killed by the police, the police killed 2.5 white people in America. If poor white people knew that, they would rally in bigger numbers to oppose police brutality because it is a threat to all and not only to black people. American Indian natives know it because they are the ones who are killed at the highest rate for about 10, 10 per 100,000 uh, and African-Americans about five per 100,000 and whites are 2.5 per 100,000. But in absolute numbers, the vast majority of those killed are white Americans. It should be a concern to poor whites too. Uh, the police as a professional organization was set up specifically to target people of African descent and poor whites. This started in 1829 in London 
where Robert Peel, the Home Secretary, set up the police to replace the volunteer force that the yeomen, that's what they were called, that used brutal force to suppress poor workers who were demanding for the right to vote and killed a lot of those poor workers in Manchester. At that time, only about 11% of the population had the right to vote in the UK. You couldn't vote because voting rights depended on property ownership. The same time that, of course, Afri enslaved Africans were deprived of the right to vote and white women in America were also deprived all throughout the world were deprived of the right to vote because they didn't own property. So as soon as Robert Peel set up the police, there were riots in London because even the middle class did not want to give the power to the government to deprive them of their liberty because it's part of their rights under the Magna Carta to have a freedom of movement without the government restricting that freedom. But then Robert Peel explained to them that this, you should have nothing to fear because the police will not be a force. They will not police by force. They will police by consent. So the public would consent to policing powers. In other words, he was telling them that the population of formerly enslaved people of African descent who had been freed and were living in London was increasing. And also the population of poor workers was increasing. So the police was actually going to target them and control their movement for public safety. Americans saw that immediately and borrowed it to use the police to replace the posse, the slave catchers, and give them a uniform and a license to kill, as it were, but target them at people of African descent. Remember, slavery was still legal in America at that time. And that is the origin of slavery, it was never put in place to protect the lives of African-Americans or American Indian natives. It was put in place to control them, deprive them of their liberty, and return them to slavery if they ever escape from slavery. So that is the background to policing. And that is why a lot of people who are conscious are demanding for an end to the police, to defund the police, to abolish the police as an institution, to decolonize criminal justice. Because prior to the colonization of Africans and indigenous people around the world, we never had an institution like the police. And we went for thousands of years being very moral people who did not commit a lot of crimes. And even when rules were broken in our communities, we found a way to heal the wound caused by infractions of the law, by correcting people in the community. We never had prisons for thousands of years. We never had the police for thousands of years. And the same goes for Europe. The police, the prison, are very modern inventions of capitalist Europe. We can still redesign our community safety programs in such a way that we do not have to rely on a force that is given the license to kill. It should not be a part of our democracy. We should let the police officers go look for jobs elsewhere and abolish policing as an institution. Can you talk about some reforms that we've seen to policing and why, how they failed and why advocates are now calling for abolition more so than just reforming and more so than just defunding? 
Yes, abolitionism is a very long struggle, again, led by people of African descent around the abolition of slavery at the time that a lot of white people thought that slavery was a way of life, it's part of their culture. They didn't believe that the abolition of slavery was a feasible demand. They thought it was impossible, uh, a utopia. But it wasn't only black people who were demanding for the abolition of slavery. A lot of white people joined in the demand and the struggle for abolition because they knew, as Martin Luther King Jr. reminded us, that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Uh, and an example being the eight-hour day or the 40-hour week. The workers were demanding for that for hundreds of years and couldn't get it until slavery was abolished. So that's an indication that slavery would affect all poor people adversely, not equally though, but adversely, and therefore is in the interest of all poor people to be in support of abolitionism. In modern times, abolitionism is still seen as an impossible dream, a utopia, or as the president would say, the goal of Marxists and radical leftists and anarchists. But Angela Davis said, that's not true, you know. When our people didn't have police as an institution, when we didn't have prisons as an institution for thousands of years, our people were not anarchists. They were not Marxists. They were just trying to build a more humane society. And Angela Davis invites all of us to again imagine a more humane, a more humane society. She didn't say a perfect society. She didn't say a utopia. She said more humane, a world without prisons, without poverty, without war, you know, without racial prejudice, sex, sexism, uh, or homophobia would be a more humane society. And these ideals are not completely science fiction. They are exactly the way Africans and American Indian natives lived for thousands of years before the imposition of white supremacy and colonization. So in more recent times, and this is something, a point that I made in my doctoral dissertation on black women and the criminal justice system, which was published by Ashgate Publishers in 1997 and just republished by Routledge in 2018. I observed that the vast majority of black women who were imprisoned in the UK were imprisoned for drugs offenses, more than 90% of them. And I'm like, if it was the case that white women from Britain were being incarcerated in Nigeria at that rate for drugs offenses, Britain would have gone to war to end the, the war on drugs in order to free their women. Remember, they waged a war against China for the right to sell opium to Chinese people, the opium war. That's how they seized Hong Kong and later returned Hong Kong to China much later. So I'm say, I said in my dissertation that this being the case, that we as people of African descent should support our women in prison by demanding for the end of the prohibition of those drugs. That those drugs should be legalized so that our women should have the right to grow marijuana, for example, and sell them to crazy tourists to make money with which to feed their family, pay school fees, or buy medication for their family. It should not be a crime. Instead, we should tax it 
and use the tax revenue to educate young people to say no to drugs. The same way we use education to get young people to say no to tobacco, even though tobacco kills more people than marijuana. Marijuana has never killed a fly, but tobacco kills half a million Americans every year, 500,000, and worldwide, tobacco kills 6 million people every year. Therefore, I'm not saying tobacco should be illegal, but we have been able to use education to get lots of young people and old people to say no to tobacco. But if they do use tobacco and they get sick, we send them to the hospital. We don't send them to jail. So that demand that I made in my book in 1997 is now becoming real in the world. Whereas at the time I was making it, my friends thought I was going to fail my doctoral dissertation <laughs> exam because they were afraid that it was a radical idea. I said, no, it's not radical. So today you find that many states in America are voting to legalize marijuana. And here in Virginia, the state governor just decriminalized it and said we should pay, people should pay $25 if the police find them with marijuana. We should tell the governor that's not enough because this will still give the police the power and the excuse to restrict the freedom of African-Americans, because we know that the police arrest African-Americans more for marijuana at a higher rate than any other group. And yet African-Americans don't use marijuana more than white Americans, for example. We spend $70 million here in Virginia alone to arrest people for marijuana. That's money we could have saved and put into education. Virginia should legislate so that we can authorize and give licenses to those black women and black men who have been criminalized by marijuana laws. They should be the first to gain the license to grow and sell marijuana legally in Virginia. All those marijuana convictions should be wiped off their slate so that they should not be known as former felons. And we can collect the taxes from their sales and use them to offer more scholarships to people, young people, to go on to college and better their lives. You're listening to WRIR 97.3 LP, Richmond Independent Radio, with me, Naomi Isaac, and this is Race Capital. Again, before Africans were enslaved and colonized, before indigenous people were subjected to genocide and their land was stolen from them, we never had any fear of same-sex couples. So homophobia is a foreign or European imposition on our consciousness and our cultures. As people who were oppressed or people who are oppressed, we ask the question, on whose side are you? When the struggle battle line is drawn, are you gonna be on our side? Or are you gonna be on the side of the oppressors? We don't ask who you love or how you love, that's your personal business. So that the March on Washington was organized by an openly gay black man, Ruskin, 
And nobody said we, they were not going because a gay man was organizing the march on Washington, the march for jobs and rights. Similarly, James Baldwin was openly gay, but African-Americans never gathered to burn his books and say that he was gay, therefore we should burn his books. In other words, African-Americans and American Indian natives, indigenous people are more tolerant of sexual difference than Europeans for some reason. But we're not giving credit enough for our tolerance and our acceptance of diversity. So because we never made those laws against same-sex relationships, because those laws were imposed by the colonizers, especially by Britain, we have, through our own examples, intolerance, shown the world that what is important is a struggle against injustice and not who loves who. So if you look now to the US, you find that the decriminalization of same-sex relationship or the legalization of same-sex marriage is not something that African-Americans oppose because this is something that was put in place by white supremacy in order to control the ownership of property. You've talked a lot about intersectionality and how, you know, many, many people are, are oppressed by police states, including poor whites, black people, women, gender nonconforming people. What do you have to say about international solidarity and its role in freeing not only Americans, but freeing all marginalized black people and all marginalized poor people? What is our role in, in terms of just acting in solidarity on a global scale? That's a good question. And once again, <clears throat> the, word, <clears throat> the global uprising against police brutality and in support of Black Lives Matter is a recognition by people around the world that this type of injustice doesn't happen only in America. All over the world, the lives of poor people are taken almost every day, in fact, every year, but by law enforcement, which should be there to protect and serve the people. That is why in Australia, for example, the indigenous population and poor white workers are rallying together, not only in support of Black Lives Matter, but also in support of indigenous lives that are being lost almost on a daily basis in police custody. When I go to Australia and I go there, I've been there uh, several times. I remind the students and colleagues that the vast majority of the people who are killed by the police in Australia are white Australians. But the rate at which indigenous Australians are killed is perhaps the highest rate of police brutality for any population in the world but because poor whites are also killed in very large numbers, we should develop the strategy of coalition building and alliance building on the basis of the common threat posed by white supremacy for all the working people in the world, not only for black people.
I saw a demon on my shoulders looking like patriarchy, like scrubbing blood off the ceiling and bleaching another carpet. How my house go on it? My toy and body don't embody all the life she wanted. The baby just 19. I know I dream all black. I seen her everything, immortalizing tweets, all caps. They said they found her dead. One girl missing, another one go missing. One girl missing another, but in the back, quiet as a church mouse. Basement studio when duty calls to get the verse out. I guess the ego hurt now. It's time to go to work. Wow, look at him go. He really doubts to write about me when the world is in smokes. When it's people in trees. When George was begging for his mother, saying he couldn't breathe. He thought to write about me. One girl missing another one, go missing. One girl missing another one. Yo, but little did I know all my reading would be about There is trans women being murdered And this is all he can offer And this is all y'all receive Distract you from the convo with organizers They talking abolishing the police And this is a new world order We democratizing Amazon We find down borders This is a new vanguard This is a new vanguard I'm the new vanguard So, my name is Art Burton And I'm the executive director of Kinfolk Community Empowerment Center, which works in um, marginalized uh, black communities in the city of Richmond. Um, I'm also the operational director of Community Unity Action, which is a social justice leadership organization um, that works on what we call the institutions of life that are responsible for ensuring that Black people in black communities live their best lives and the best quality of life that they can live. And certainly a component of that is education. I wanted to talk about the school to prison pipeline because that's come up a lot when we're talking about these systems of policing and mass incarceration that black youth are facing. Can you explain to folks who may not know what, what the school to prison pipeline is? Can you contextualize that for the listeners? Well, the, the school to prison pipeline um, is, as it suggests, what it suggests is that there are disciplinary actions taken while black youth are in school that result in them being in contact with the, ju the justice system and the, uh, particularly the juvenile justice system which begins them on a path that creates records and documentations uh, and, and charges that then, as they grow older, lead them into the adult uh, jail system, prison system. And so it will suggest that in addition to them losing school time because of these fractions that that, that put them behind educationally, the combination of the, the failing of their, their failing to educate them and giving them a justice system record ultimately causes them to end up in the adult prison system. And so a lot of folks, activists, always talk about Virginia's role in perpetuating uh, or empowering the, the school to prison pipeline. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that looks like here in Richmond and how that's affecting black youth in the Commonwealth? So, so um, one of the reasons we founded Community Unity Action because when Lynetta Thompson was the president of the Richmond NAACP, 
she, she supported a partnership with the ACLU that filed a civil rights complaint against Richmond Public School System about the disproportionate a number of black men who the, the civil rights complaint said were arbitrarily and capriciously being referred to the police system of the Richmond Police Department for disciplinary action, which meant that if a young black man came to school or a young black person came to school and they did something that was against school policy, a lot of times the things that were against school policy resulted in the Richmond Police Department being called in and then being arrested or charged with a crime outside of the school system. Um, as a result of that, you know, Lynetta was, was pretty much ousted as the president of the NAACP by the black political power structure in the city um, to the point where in order to really keep that lawsuit alive, we had to found a whole entirely new uh, social justice organization. Um, what that lawsuit showed us, or excuse me, what that civil rights complaint and the supporting documentation showed us is that in the Richmond public school system, there were about 358 youth a year that were being charged by the Richmond Police Department. And of the 358 that were being charged, 50% of those kids, over 150 kids, were coming out of two schools, which was MLK, Martin Luther King Middle School, and Armstrong High School, which, as we know, sits in the heart of what we call uh, the Richmond's largest food desert in the East End and the very neighborhoods that house the bulk of public housing residents. And so when you consider that, Richmond Public School System has 40-plus schools and 153 kids are coming out of two of those schools, that means that you, what is that? That's about four kids per school versus about 75 kids that are coming out of these two schools. And so it, it was the disproportionate amount of poor black youth who were committing a disciplinary infraction in the Richmond public school system and then being charged by the police department was, it was, it was horrendous, horrendous and still is to some extent. Yeah, can, can you speak to the overwhelming militarization of these Black youth's lives? Like you spoke about how this is coming, um, the, the most um, referrals are coming from MLK and Armstrong. What does that area look like? How are, how are these kids living? What are the conditions in their neighborhoods? Well, well, first, these are mostly public housing communities. They are the, their income. So, so community union action, our, our organization was pretty much founded as a remedy to this civil rights complaint. And our argument is that violent and disruptive behaviors in schools and communities are a result of health and economic disparities and inequality. And when you look at these communities, the average family is living on between eight and $12,000 a year. Um, their public housing, uh, when you, you know, even when you talk about spado heat, the communities are hotter because they have less trees, less parks, city services are being denied, they lack after school programs. 
Police departments rarely respond. Um, they're high crime, high violence, um, substance abuse, mental illness. Um, the, in these communities, the average life is 20 years less than their white counterparts that live less than a mile away from them. And so, and we like to say that when a child is in crisis, it is the indication that a family is in crisis. And so a lot of times when these kids come to school, they are already uh, coming into the school system in a very traumatized or a very defensive state where they, they only can think about their survival. And a lot of times their behavior is a response to a young a child who is simply living in a survival mode. There's been a lot of calls to demilitarize the public school system uh, just because of the way that, again, this grooms our children in the city for uh, mass incarceration and to live a life of enslavement. So what I'm trying to figure out, or not what I'm trying to figure out, but what we're trying to get at is who is this serving? Who stands to benefit from incarcerating and uh, villainizing our Black youth here in the city of Richmond? You know, even as recently as 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 um, two months ago, as a result of coronavirus, when the governor was asked, would he be willing to parole black black prisoners, black and brown prisoners, he looked at the, his his director of homeland security and public safety, Brian Moran, looked at the audience and said, there is no parole in Virginia, and so the state of Virginia, and then turned to a pointed to a face mask that was made by inmates as an example of some of the great things that the uh, the prison system in, in this state is doing. And, and what that said is that this government is still committed to the mass incarceration of Black people to be used for free labor. And so we, we, we don't understand the amount of free labor that is, is given as a result of incarceration of Black and Brown people, the number of Black and Brown children who don't compete for college, college placements, who don't go on to get high-placed jobs, uh, whose communities never benefit from the intellectual and, and human capital that they possess. And so, you know, this is a continuation of, and even now, you know, the, the, the state and federal, the state government and city government are operating burn grants and crime reduction grants that do targeted enforcement on black communities and, and literally hunt for black bodies to charge them and in many cases, overcharge them um, in order to give them long sentences that will deny them a pathway to freedom. So advocates like yourself uh, have been calling to defund and or abolish the Richmond Police Department. I spoke this weekend at the Black Joy Parade, um, and you really speak in power just about how you know, I think you said during the 1990s, you were living uh, in Mosby Court and watching just as scores of Black children were going missing and the RPD failed to save them. Can you speak a little bit more about why you and advocates such as yourself are, are saying that, you know, the police don't keep us safe and that um, in turn we need to defund and, and abolish them potentially? 
So let me correct that. I've spent my entire 20-year career as a social justice advocate in some of the most dangerous and violent communities in the city. My 90s, the late 97, late 90s and early 2000s were spent in Highland Park. And when I talk about the violence in Mosby Court, I'm talking about violence that was occurring as late as, late as 2014, 2016. And if you do an over, first of all, the only people, the majority of the people who are murdered in the city of Richmond are black people. If you do an overlay of where they get murdered, then it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out where people are being murdered at in the city of Richmond. And the police department could do something about it, but it has been very intentional about not wanting to police black communities in a way that black people need them to be policed and that hasn't been what the richmond police department has done um and in many cases has chastised and admonished black people and suggested that the reason that there is crime and violence and their kids are dying is because they are failing to turn in the perpetrators of the crime which, when you think about it, doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, if you knew who were killing your children, you certainly wouldn't leave them out there. Um, but that has been the response to the police department uh, in this city. Uh, and it's very interesting that while they refuse to stop, can seemingly do nothing about the murder and violence that is occurring in black communities. And, and, and let me say that those are used as the reasons to destroy these communities tear them down. They always point to the crime and violence that exists in the community as the reason why the community should be torn down, which is an interesting scenario when you think about uh, it's, it's, a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that did allow white folks to come in and take the land from black people. Uh, and so this is, this is uh, something that we've really been fighting is one, transformation, uh, if you put community programs in the communities, our children would have something to do. If you put workforce programs in the community, our kids would have ways to make money. If you put uh, community case management to support the families in the community, we could, we could bring down the amount of stress and trauma and, allow, and then allow people to be, have this time and space to make better decisions. But, as, but we in this city, have been intentional about funding the largest, fully, fully funding and fully staffing the largest police force in the state of Virginia, 750 men and women strong with ungodly amounts of equipment who we saw in this last, um, in, the, in the start of this revolution was completely unable to protect uh, the city at all, but found it easy and necessary to tear gas and shoot rubber bullets at peaceful protesting citizens denying them of their rights and so um so we so we think we really have to look at a complete redistribution of wealth and and i'm hoping that the defund the police conversation is just the first door opening to this larger conversation about redistribution of wealth in this city, period.
I know they're watching, ancestors watching, I know they're watching, I know, I know. I know they're watching, ancestors watching, I know they're watching, I know, I know. I know they're watching, ancestors watching, I know they're watching, I know, I know. I know they're watching, ancestors watching, I know they're watching, I know I know they're watching, ancestors watching, I know they're watching, I know they're I know they're watching, ancestors watching, I know they're watching, I know they're I know they're watching, ancestors watching, I know they're watching, I know they're I know they're watching, ancestors watching, I know they're watching, I know they're I know they're watching, ancestors watching, I know they're watching, I know they're A world free from hundred million dollar police budgets is close. A world where our families have all of their needs met exists. In fact, it has existed before. Our ancestors have shown us that we can be liberated as they were once before us. We need not concern ourselves with reconciliation or reformation. This world is ours for the healing. This world is ours for the reclamation. I can imagine a world in which my descendants are free. Can you? I want to invite you into a world. A new world. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. And imagine the youngest person in your life. What do they look like? How do they look when they smile? Now I want you to imagine your time machine. Your decked out colors and your favorite revolution song playing. We're gonna take a trip. So grab onto the handle of your time machine. Say goodbye to the youngest person that you know in your life. And open it up because we're gonna go 50 years into the future. Take a deep breath. And now we are taking our trip through space, time, and you're listening to that revolution jam. And now this time machine has landed. Undo your seatbelt, open the door, and who's there to greet you on this new land of freedom? But the youngest person that you knew, 50 years later, what do they look like? How's their smile now? They show you around the new world that you hope to create. What does freedom feel like? What does it sound like? How does the air feel on your face? Take it in. This is the world that you fought for, that you hoped to build. Now they're taking you on a tour, the new world. I just want y'all to take it in. Hold this feeling inside of you. Take a deep breath. In for four, out for six. Look to the youngest person in your life. It's time to say goodbye. 
Grab that handle of the time machine door. Crank up that revolution jam. We're headed back to 2020. To continue fighting for this world, world we're building.